So we continue our series today, Good News with Mark the Evangelist. Today we're looking at the passage where Jesus comes walking on the water to the disciples who are in a boat struggling against the wind to uh, row across the sea. So we have been uh, emphasizing this morning this concept of perception. Uh, how do we see the world? I mean, do we, do we see a bunny or do we see a rabbit? Do we see an older woman kind of looking down or a younger woman kind of looking away? The point here is what we see uh, matters, and what we see depends largely upon our, per- our perception, but our perception sometimes needs to be sanctified. Our perception needs to be changed so that we can see what God is really up to um, in our lives. So this is not simply the power of positive thinking. Like, I'm not just encouraging you to be more of an optimist than a pessimist, to be the kind of glass half full as opposed to the glass half empty. I'm talking about something far more serious and far deeper than that. I'm talking about perceiving the activity of God in our lives. This is not something that just has to do with our emotions that may kind of come and go, but has to do with kind of the essence of who we are and who God is calling us and has made us to be. Um, How close really is Jesus? And how does that matter? What is Jesus doing? And what can he do? And what will he do? So there are different ways that we can read the Gospel of Mark. Sometimes we come to a book like Mark and we're trying to read it primarily historically. Like this is history. It's telling us something that has happened. And certainly that's a legitimate way to read. Although a careful reading of Mark's gospel might suggest that that wasn't his priority. Like when he's telling the stories, he's telling them in such ways that he leaves out a lot of details that you think a historian might add in. So if he's not primarily interested in history, what might he be primarily interested in? And I would say that's the gospel. It's the good news that Mark's primary concern is not to tell us a story, but to proclaim to us the truth of Jesus Christ. So seen or perceived as a miracle story, this story of Jesus kind of walking on the water, It's interesting, yet a little troubling. I mean, no one is healed. There are no demons that are cast out. No one is fed. In fact, there's there's little utility to this story at all. So this story in in Mark chapter 6, where Jesus walks on the water, not to be confused with the story back in chapter 4, where he calms the sea. Like there's this story in chapter 4, Jesus and the disciples are on a boat on the Sea of Galilee and a storm whips up and Jesus is sleeping and the disciples are kind of freaking out. And it says Jesus was asleep in the back of the boat with his head on a cushion. I've always thought that was an interesting kind of detail there. I guess he had a pillow with him. And so they wake Jesus up and he's like, oh, calm down, guys. And they're like, oh, no, we're going to die. And then he goes, okay, then calm down, storm. And the storm comes down. And they're like, oh, no, what's that about? Right, So there's that story. And there's another story in a different gospel where Jesus comes walking on the water and he calls Peter out to him. This is neither of those, right? This is not Peter walking out on the water. This is not Jesus saying, peace be still. This is a different story altogether. Jesus, they're trying to get across the sea. It says Jesus comes on the sea. 
They think he's a ghost. It's an interesting story, a very interesting story. But there's not an obvious purpose for it, not at, not at least at first glance or through our first perception. Well, it's certainly possible to perceive it, this story, as just another miracle story. There are several details that suggest that something else is going on. So let's take a look at the passage. So this is Mark chapter 6. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead to the other side to Bethesda while he dismissed the crowd. This is right at the end. He fed the 5,000. Now he's put his disciples in the boat and said, all right, fellas, get on over across the sea to Bethesda. And I'll take care of the crowd. I'll dismiss them. He dismisses the crowd. After saying farewell to them, he went up to the mountain to pray. When evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he, Jesus, was alone on the land. When they saw that, when he saw, excuse me, that they were straining at the oars against an adverse wind, he came towards them early in the morning, walking on the sea. He intended to pass them by. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, and they cried out, for they saw him, and they were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Then he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, the feeding of the 5,000, but their hearts were hardened. Huh? He intended to pass them by. I mean, what's that about? That's a weird thing to say. I mean, what was he, what was he doing? Was he trying to get across the sea before they did? Like, here they are struggling against the wind. And Jesus is like, I'm going to get there before those guys, suckers. He intended to pass them by? We'll get back to that in a minute. Rather than seeing this primarily about a miracle, I want to suggest that there's an alternative way to perceive that as opposed to seeing uh, a rabbit, I want to say that this is a duck. Or as opposed to seeing it as a story that's about a miracle, I want to say it's a story about an epiphany. It's an epiphany story, a manifestation story, a story about who Jesus is more than a story about some people just getting taken care of once upon a time. There are multiple details that suggest this might be the best way to understand the story and what's going on. So what do I mean by an epiphany story? This story describes Jesus in a lot of ways that the Old Testament describes God the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Like descriptions that we had of Yahweh in the Old Testament are being ascribed in this story to Jesus. The same exact kind of language. So many of the ways, in fact, so in so many ways, in fact, that this story pulses with a the theme. The theme that Jesus, this person that you know, who often went away alone up on the mountain to pray by himself, who got hungry when he didn't eat and got tired when he didn't um, sleep. Yeah, thanks. This same Jesus, yes, this Jesus is God. He's divine. He walks on water. So let's set the, set the stage. 
So the feeding of the 5,000 just finished up, and Jesus sends the disciples to the other side and dismisses the crowd and goes up on the mountain to pray. Uh, the disciples, meanwhile, are struggling to make it across the sea, and they're rowing against the wind. Uh, they don't know that Jesus can see them. They don't know that he knows that they're, in, that they're struggling. It's the middle of the night. Uh, it's somewhere between three and six. It's, uh, the translation, it didn't have in my translation, but it says it's the fourth watch of the night, which interestingly enough, Jews only had three watches in the night, but the Romans had four watches in the night. So apparently Mark's trying to, in case any Romans are reading this story, they'll know what time it is. It's somewhere between three and six a.m., Yet Jesus, and I think this is key, does know, right? He sees them out on the sea. And when he sees them and he sees them struggling, his first inclination is to go to them. He's on the way. Sometimes the Lord sends us into situations where our faith can be tested. Not in order to tempt us, because God does not do that. The book of James tells us. But rather to see but we do face trials that enable us uh, for our faith to be strengthened. So in what ways is this story uh, like a manifestation story? In what ways does this story talk about Jesus that the Old Testament talks about God the Father? First, Jesus comes walking on the sea. This is actually an uh, interesting uh, cliche, right? To say that somebody can walk on water. It's, it's coming to our common parlance by way of speaking of things. Like, I hear it all the time. Angela Waddell can walk on water, right? She can do anything. Yeah, right? And if you're around her much, you, you can kind of start to think it, right? She gets this done. She gets that done. She gets the other done, right? But it's a cliche. She can walk on water. She can't actually walk on water. I mean, I don't know. Maybe she hasn't tried. I'm not sure. Or we hear it in the reverse, right? People will say, ah, oh, Robbie, he thinks he can walk on water. <laughs> but in any case, it's this, it's this expression. Well, in the Old Testament, it was an expression, but not as a sense of exaggeration or hyperbole. In the Old Testament, it's a metaphor for the sovereignty of God. There are multiple examples I want to show you. The first one comes from Job ch uh, chapter 9. Who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea? Uh, the answer, if we read on down, is God. Then in Psalm 77, in the 77th Psalm, it says this. Your way was through the sea, your path through the mighty waters, yet your footprints were unseen. Right, there's a, there was a, a poem in kind of uh, Christian circles a few years back about two sets of footprints in the sand. They must have been reading Psalm 77. In Isaiah, uh, we get the same thing again. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters. So the sea in the Old Testament is this place of chaos and uncertainty. And so the way that, that God the Father is described is the one who tramples the sea, who just walks over the sea. The sea's no problem for him. And so now in this story, we see Jesus coming to the disciples, walking on the sea. What's interesting, too, and this is another way in which the, the story about Jesus kind of reflects the story about the Father in the Old Testament, is that they don't recognize him. 
Jesus is unrecognizable in this story in the gospel. They say, you know, they don't, they don't see him, or they see him, but they don't, real, they don't recognize him. They think he's a ghost. Now, on the one hand, you have to say, what in the world's happening? They've been living with this guy. They walk around with him. Like, if, if I were out on a boat and I saw one of you coming at me, I, I might be scared, but I think I'd recognize you. Yes? No? Right? If you see me in a different context, you'd still know who I am. Like, you're used to seeing me here. I'm used to seeing you here. But if I bumped into you at Publix or at Lowe's, you wouldn't say, oh, there's someone I don't know. Right? You'd say, hey, Robbie. Right? He's unrecognizable. It's just a, it's a funny detail in the story. Um, however, there are many times that God or an angel, when we have this kind of theophany or this kind of epiphany kind of stories in the Old Testament, are revealed but are not initially recognized. For example, let's look at this passage from Joshua. Uh, Once when Joshua was, was by Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing before him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you one of us or one of our adversaries? Uh, He replied, neither. (laughs) But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua fell on his face uh, to the earth and worshiped and said to him, What do you command your servant, my Lord? And the commander of the army of the Lord said to Joshua, Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. There are countless other examples of how when people have this um, vision, this experience of an angel or God, that they're kind of cast into confusion. Maybe it's just because the perception is such that it's hard to imagine what this is. It kind of overwhelms them, right? So I say I would recognize you, but if I saw you come walking on the water, I might not think it's you, right? I might think, what in the world's going on? Another kind of aspect of this is that in these manifestation stories, the normal response that we see is that people are filled with fear. They're afraid. And the same thing happens here. And the normal response to that fear that comes from the divine messenger or from the divine manifestation is don't fear. Don't be afraid. It's okay. Genesis uh, 15 tells a story like this. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Um, In Judges, there's another example. But the Lord said to him, peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Again, there are countless examples of this as well, saying don't be afraid. So we translate this passage from Mark, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. But that middle phrase, it is I, are literally the words I am. I am is the most common self-designation used by God in the Old Testament. So you know the story, like Moses sees a burning bush and he's like, wow, I should pay attention because that bush is burning and it's not getting burned up. And so he has this conversation with God, and in the process, God reveals God's self by saying, I am. It's like Moses is like, who am I supposed to tell Pharaoh is sending me? And God said, tell him I am is sending you. 
And so we see that kind of throughout the Old Testament. We see it especially in the Gospel of John. There are a lot of I am sayings. But we see it here too. When it says, take courage, we can translate it as I. And a more colloquial, we'd say, hey guys, don't be afraid. It's me, Jesus. <laughs> it's all right. But the, the actual phrase there, and this kind of goes along with him walking on the water, on, on him kind of uh, not being recognized, of them being filled with fear, is this statement that Jesus says is the exact same two words that kind of come out from the burning bush, I am. That's pretty significant. We find it in other places in the Old Testament too. In Isaiah, there's this kind of prophecy, and it's interesting. It's a prophecy about rescue, about salvation, about deliverance. It says this, I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, says the Lord. I am God, and henceforth I am he. There is no one who can deliver from my hand. Excuse me, there is no one who can deliver, yeah. There is no one who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can hinder it? Now that is good news. Who can pluck us from the hand of God? No one. Who, who can take away the things that the Lord provides for us? No one. Again, in our English translation, it gets translated, I am he. But in the Greek translation from the Hebrew, it's the same two words that Jesus says, this kind of divine pronouncement, having come across the water, having been misperceived as a ghost. I am. So let's recap a bit. Jesus walks on the sea like God. Jesus is unrecognizable, like God and angels who get revealed, like the divine messengers. His appearance induces fear, like it does in the Old Testament. But he says, don't fear, I am. I'm starting to see a pattern here. The pattern I'm seeing is that Jesus is and acts in this passage, like God is and acts in the Old Testament. And now for the most troubling or puzzling of the statements. When he saw that they were straining at the oars against an adverse wind, he came towards them early in the morning, walking on the sea. He intended to pass them by. He intended to pass them by. That's a weird one. If this is simply a miracle story, then that makes little sense. What's he doing? As I said earlier, trying to beat them to Bethesda? He's like, hey, we got things to do. Sorry, guys, the wind's against you. No, not at all. In fact, in the Markham story, they don't even get to Bethesda to like chapters later. It's like they, they got sidetracked or something. They end up going lots of different places until they come back around. However, if this is an epiphany story, like if this is, is a story about who Jesus is kind of more than what, what Jesus is kind of uh, doing for them, some kind of utility, uh, although there is a miracle, of course, in the story, then it makes perfect sense. Because in the Old Testament, when God wanted to show people that he was with them, when he wanted to show people that they could trust him, the Old Testament said that God would come and pass by them. It's, it's language that gets used for God. It's the exact same word. When Moses has this encounter with God, back to the, you know, the Sinai burning bush story, it says this, and God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you the name, 
the Lord, right? And I will uh, be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. There is a place by me where you can stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. A similar story occurs with a who um, has been trying to get away from Ahab and, you know, his wife. And the word of the Lord comes to Elijah and it says, God said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Right, we all know this story, right? He's like, woe is me, I'm the only one that serves you. Jezebel's trying to kill me, Ahab's trying to kill me. And there's an earthquake, but the Lord is not in it. And there's a fire, and the world's not in it. It's a whirlwind, and the, Lord, and the Lord is not in it. And then the NRSV translates it, there's the sound of sheer silence. And God speaks to Elijah and says, get out of the cave, go stand on the edge, because I'm about to pass by. Job, again, says something similar, although I think Job is struggling with his perception still, right? Job's in the midst of the struggle, and Job can't see God, but nevertheless uses similar language. Job 9, this is just a few verses from what we read before. Who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the ways of the sea? Look, he passes by me. I do not see him. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. Jesus is not seeking to pass them in order to ignore them. It's just the opposite. He wants to pass by them to show them that he is strong and able and present, ever present. He's got you. He knows the wind is against you. He knows the times are tough. He knows the sea is rough and the waters are troubled. Maybe the very waters of our souls are troubled. But we serve a Lord who walks on the water, who knows our every need, who never leaves us utterly alone, who comes to us in the darkness of night, but we may not be able to perceive it. It's our perception sometimes that is off. We feel that we're alone, especially at night. Think of that, from three to six in the morning, when you can't sleep because you're woken up by the troubles of your life, things aren't working out, you can't, you can't see a way for them to be fixed. And where is Jesus? He's walking on the waves, passing you by, saying, I've got you. I'm here. And sometimes, like the disciples, we mistake the, the presence of Jesus for trouble. Was that a ghost? Has the Lord forsaken me? No, not a chance. That's Jesus, trampling over the ways. He's on his way. He's on his way to show us that he's got us. The disciples were having a hard time realizing that this person that they knew was more than that what they could perceive, even though they had seen him feed the 5,000. John Calvin said that the disciples in this walking on the water story showed very extraordinary stupidity. Uh, I have to disagree with Calvin. I don't think they're stupid. 
I just think they're real folk. I think they're trying to make it through. How in the world, with all of our limits of our finitude, were they supposed to perceive that this rabbi that they were following around, who may very well have been a Hebrew prophet like the days of old, was not just the Messiah, was something more than the Messiah. He wasn't just the king that God anointed. He was the very presence of God in our midst. I don't know what your troubles are but I know you well enough to know that you have troubles. And I want you to know that in the midst of of your storm, when you're rowing, it's all you got just to keep moving, just to make it another day. Like, I'm not sure I can do this anymore, right? That here comes Jesus walking on the water, passing by, but again, not to leave us alone, but to reveal to us who he really is. When you came in today, um, there were these cards that were handed to you. I'd like for you to take them out. If you didn't get one, I'd like for you to hold your hand up so that we can bring one to you. And so if you already have one, uh, take out a pen in front of you. And on the envelope, I want you to address it to yourself. I want you to write your address, not on the return address, but on, on the, you know, if, it, if this is being mailed to you. So, so write your address on there. And once, once you've got your address written on there, right, we're, we're still coming around delivering the envelopes. But once you've got your address written on there, I want you to open up the card that says, Peace Be Still. And I want you to write in there what your storm is. It could be something as simple as one word, fear. I'm afraid. I'm afraid that my, my marriage isn't going to make it. I'm afraid that I'm going to lose my job. I'm afraid that my children aren't going to know the Lord. I'm afraid. Fear. It, it may be something uh, physical, right? You've been diagnosed with, with something or or you've yet to be diagnosed, but you, you feel something. Or someone you love has been diagnosed with something. It may be financial. It may just be finances. But what is it that wakes you up in the morning? What is it that causes you not to be able to sleep well? Not, not to be able to rest in the presence of the Lord? Maybe, again, it might not just be personal for you. It could be your family or your extended family. But I just want you to write whatever it is that could be described as that wind that's pushing back against you as you try to follow what God has called you to do. They were rowing their oars, but the wind was against them. I don't know what's going to happen to the wind in your life. But I do know this. And I know it by faith that Jesus is walking on the water coming to be with you. What's interesting about that story, it never says Jesus told the wind to calm down. I mean, it did mention that it it did calm down. But it didn't say that he told it to. I love that because I don't think the story's about the wind anyway. Because even if the wind continued to blow against them, now they know that the God of the universe is with them. 
even in the midst of the storm. What we're going to do is that we're going to hold on to these and we're going to mail them back to you. You'll get them before Thanksgiving. And at Thanksgiving, we can all look back and be thankful if we have eyes to see and ears to hear that Jesus has been with us and that he has trampled the waves to get to us and to be with us because he loves us, because he's divine, because he's come to be with us yet again.